Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Comforter Has Come, Everywhere, Always, for All. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 27th, 2012, the day of Pentecost. If you want to splurge on an expensive coffee table book, I have a suggestion. Michael Benson's book with the title, Far Out, A Space-Time Chronicle. In an odd sort of way, it's the perfect book for Pentecost. I don't ever recall enjoying a book more that I understood less. The 228-color astrophotographic images compiled by Benson along with his running commentary, provoke cosmological meditations that merge the scientific and the sacred. The mysteries and majesty of the cosmos pile up in page after page of superlatives, like stars that are four million times the brightness of the sun, or dark matter, which comprises about 96% of the universe, and which Benson describes as, quote, a putative something about which we know almost nothing. On the last page of his book, Menson contemplates human consciousness that has deciphered our unimaginably vast cosmos with its 13 billion year old light twinkling back to us on Earth. He writes, scientific explanations for the process by which those atoms came together are as mysterious finally as faith-based ones, he admits. And then in the final paragraph of the book, Benson's prose reaches the breaking point. He writes, through a profoundly mysterious alchemy, via the agency of an unyet ineffable mechanism, a certain further something then transpired. That further something was the appearance of carbon-based life and self-conscious human beings who, like everything else in the cosmos, originated from materials that once wafted in clouds and between the stars. We normally think of Pentecost as the descent of the Spirit for the birth of the Church. And that's true. But the saga of the Spirit is far more profound. It began not with the birth of the Church, but before the beginning of time and the creation of the cosmos. The second sentence of the Bible makes the first mention of the Spirit, describing at the mysterious beginnings of the cosmos, God's Spirit hovered over all creation like a protective mother. And in the epistle this week, Paul says the Spirit intercedes not just for humanity, but for the whole creation. This week's psalm likewise connects the glories of creation with the presence of the Spirit. Psalm 104 is a long paean of praise to God for the glories of all heaven and earth. How many are your works, O Lord! In wisdom you made them all, sun and moon, wind and water, mountains and valleys beasts of the field and birds of the air. 
and bread, oil, food, and wine that sustain us and gladden the heart. However glorious our cosmic past and present, though, the future of the universe is destined for death and decay. In his recent book, Science and Religion in Quest of Truth, the Anglican priest and particle physicist John Polkinghorne explains how, in about a billion years, the sun will expand and swallow the earth. The future of the entire universe is equally bleak. Billions of years from now, the cosmos will either collapse into a big crunch or expand indefinitely until all carbon-based life must disappear from everywhere within it. This certainty of cosmic futility led the Nobel physicist and outspoken atheist Steven Weinberg to famously conclude that, quote, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. But Christians imagine an alternate destiny in which the end of the cosmos is not the end of history. Based on our convictions about the character of God, says Polkinghorne, we believe that creation is not just chaos, but a cosmos. Not simply a world making sense now, but a world making sense always. The cosmic end predicted by physicists, which destiny believers need not deny, is not our ultimate end. In some subtle mixture of continuity and discontinuity with the current cosmos, the Spirit of God who brooded over the original creation will continue to sustain, create, and envelop us with motherly love. In his epistle this week, Paul therefore contrasts the present futility of creation with its future glory. He compares the cosmic struggles of the whole creation to the pains of childbirth. Creation groans with frustrations and bondage to decay, he says, but it also waits in eager expectation for liberation and glorious freedom. In the interim, says Paul, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We might not know how to pray, admits Paul, but we're never bereft of the sustenance of the Spirit. For a cinematic version of this saga of the Spirit, I love Terence Malick's film, The Tree of Life. The film begins with cosmic scenes that could have been taken from Benson's book, along with a quote from Job 38.4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And then two and a half hours later, the movie ends with an afterlife. And in between this cosmic beginning and end is the story of a single family struggling in this life that's equally beautiful and terrifying, full of both blessings and sorrows. And then finally, the last few seconds of the Tree of Life end with a prayer. Help us. Guide us till the end of time. And after a pause comes the divine response. 
follow me. We have a choice, says Malik. In the words of the mother of the family, Mrs. O'Brien, we can live by nature or by grace. The Hebrew creation story adopted by the earliest Christians has always been radically monist, in contrast to any hint of dualism. That is, nothing ever has or could exist outside the original hovering love of the Spirit of God. Nothing in all creation can ever separate us from this divine love, Paul says. You might exist outside the church. You will certainly suffer and struggle in weakness, but you're never beyond the presence of the spirit of creation. All that God originally created, he continually sustains and will ultimately redeem through that same spirit. And so on Pentecost, we say the comforter has come. Everywhere, always, and for all. For books this week, I review a title called The Collapse of American Criminal Justice. The author is William J. Stuntz, Harvard University Press, 2011, 413 pages. Bill Stuntz cut an unusual figure as the Henry J. Friendly Professor of Law at Harvard University, a former clerk for Justice Lewis F. Powell, a brilliant legal scholar, politically conservative by Harvard standards, and a Christian active in campus ministry. His death in March of 2011 after a three-year battle with colon cancer was followed by an obituary in the New York Times, which among other things noted that Cambridge University Press will publish a book of essays about Stunts's scholarship. William Stunts completed the final manuscript for this book only a few weeks before he entered hospice care. And when the New York Review of Books reviewed it in November of 2011, they gave that task to Justice John Paul Stevens. Stuntz's book documents the many ways and reasons that our criminal justice system is wildly unjust. We imprison more citizens than the former Soviet Union. The bloated prison population is not only a disaster, but what he calls a pointless disaster, because it doesn't deter crime and it doesn't have to happen. And in fact, it did not happen in past decades. Throughout the book, he focuses on how disparity and discrimination differ according to race, blacks and whites, class, rich and poor, and geography, north and south. Stuntz identifies three symptoms of this dysfunction. First is the collapse of the rule of law under the weight of procedure. Some 96% of felony convictions are reached by plea bargains which means that almost no one is judged by a jury of peers based upon the substance of the law and the merits of the case. The arbitrary discretion of police about whom to arrest, and by 
prosecutors about what charges to bring drive the system. Second, the disparity of the system hits hardest among black victims and suspects. The 14th Amendment of Equal Protection under the law has become what Stuntz calls all but meaningless for blacks. Places with high crime rates, for example, like cities, often have elected officials from suburbs who have no vested interest in their neighborhoods. And third, across the last century, there have been wild pendulum swings between excessive leniency and severity, with predictable consequences for crime and punishment. In his final chapter, Stuntz makes four proposals. First, more police in the highest crime areas should reduce crime and also the prison population. In particular, we need a more local and robust form of democracy in which residents elect the police, judges, and juries that will oversee the law enforcement under which they live. This should breed confidence about getting a fair shake, says Stuntz, rather than the current crisis of legitimacy. Second, we need a revival of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Third, Stuntz believes that giving judges greater discretion would temper the highly politicized justice in matters like mandatory sentences. And finally, like many other observers, Stuntz is frustrated at the disproportionate impact of the drug wars on way too many people, and so he would revise the severity of drug laws and punishments. <clears throat> In the end, Stunt says he has hope, although he's not optimistic. But at least this magisterial book of meticulous scholarship, with its plea for justice, makes an excellent case that we can and should do better. William J. Stunt's The Collapse of American Criminal justice. For movies this week, I review a film from Switzerland. It's called In the Garden of Sounds from the year 2010. Wolfgang Fasser was born with a genetic disorder called retinitis pigmentosa. And so from childhood he knew that he would eventually lose his sight. He was completely blind by age 22. This documentary film shows how he went on to become a therapist to profoundly disabled children using music. In 1999, he opened a studio that was especially equipped with all sorts of sound improvisations, a piano, an accordion, oboe, gong, cymbals, drums, and so on. The film shows him working with Jenny, Hermano, Andrea, and Lucia, and how Fosser uses music therapy to help build a bridge to reality with them. Yes, the possibilities are limited, he admits, and there are disappointments. But Fasser has created a safe place for his kids. He's obviously wise and compassionate, and so they respond to the mystery of sound. Their breathing quiets, they grow calmer, and they participate in making music. 
Wolfgang gives me a lot of courage, says Jenny, who has cerebral palsy, even though he can't see anything. He also encourages me not to give up when I'm afraid. In the Garden of Sounds. The movie is in Swiss German with English subtitles. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by Boris Pasternak. Pasternak lived from 1890 to 1960. Pasternak was born Jewish, but raised in the Russian Orthodox faith. Originally, he supported the Russian Revolution, but later lost his faith in the totalian apparatus that emerged. He once said he was an atheist who had lost faith in atheism. The title of his poem is called To Be Famous. Creation calls for self-surrender, not loud noises and cheap success. Life must be lived without false face, lived so that in the final count, we draw unto ourselves love from space. So plunge yourself into obscurity and conceal there your tracks. But be alive, alive your full share, alive until the end. Boris Pasternak, who won the Nobel Prize in 1958 for Dr. Zhivago, the title of his poem, To Be Famous. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 27, 2012, Pentecost Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.